Thanks so much for listening to the Clifton Church of Christ sermon podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we hope if ever you're in Clifton, Texas, you'll stop by and say hello. We hope you enjoy this sermon. I told you last week that we were going to do two weeks in a row where I began my sermon with these stories about people being in the right place at the right time, right? And I kind of tried to tell you that I don't necessarily believe in luck. I don't believe that there's this, oh, well, that was really lucky. And so whenever I hear these stories, I think they're always fascinating. But I saved this one for this Sunday. Once there was this, this is a true story, once there was this little girl who was a little Indian girl and she had been taken in a raid by the Hidatsa tribe whenever she was 12 years old. She was then sold a little later in her life to a French-Canadian trapper named Toussaint Charbonneau and her name was Sacagawea. Some of you may have heard of her before. Charbonneau and Sacagawea both were able to translate. It was kind of one of those things where she could translate into French-Canadian and he could translate from French-Canadian into English. And they both ended up becoming invaluable joining the Lewis and Clark expedition in 1805. In Stephen Ambrose's book, uh, if, you're, if you're not familiar, Stephen Ambrose is the guy who's famous for writing the book Band of Brothers that became a very popular TV series. He also wrote a D-Day book. He wrote a book called Undaunted Courage just about the the links that Meriwether Lewis and, Lewis and Clark had to go to to cross the United States. And he shares that at one of the lowest points in the expedition, they had been counting on there being a waterway that they could take all the way across. And so once they realized that that was not going to be possible, crossing the Rocky Mountains and things like that, they were desperate for, we are counting on being able to trade with Indian tribes to get their horses so we can take our group and our supplies via horseback. And at one of their lowest points, they were like, we don't have anything left to barter. We're desperately needing horses. And so they go to meet with the, the leader of the Shoshone tribe. His name's Kemiawe. And they go to meet with him. And as they go to meet, they bring their group and they bring Toussaint and they bring Sacagawea to translate. And when they get there, they realize that Sacagawea and the leader of the tribe, they are brother and sister. And basically, the Indian, the leader of the tribe, he didn't even barter because he was like, you've reunited me with my sister that was taken when she was 12 years old. You can have all the horses you want. Isn't that insane? That's like crazy level right place at the right time type of stuff right there. I mean, Hollywood could not script. If you watched a movie where that happened, you'd be like, oh, sure, they're brother and sister. No, and it happened in real life. Pretty amazing. So... Today, we're going to finish our series, and we're going to reflect more on how you can see throughout the story, it appears like, wow, look at this incredible thing. Esther and Mordecai are in the right place at the right time, and instead, I'd like to say that they are in the place that they're at, and they are who they are for a purpose in God's rescue plan for the people of Israel. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and catch you up on some key things in the story. We're not going to be able to cover the rest of Esther. If you want to come to Wednesday night class, we can talk about kind of the parts I'm going to have to kind of skim over. But where we left off last week is that Haman is furious. Haman, the villain of the story, is furious that Mordecai won't bow to him. And so he comes up with a plan to not only kill Mordecai, but to kill all the Jews in the provinces of Babylon. And Mordecai hears about this, convinces Esther and says, you have got to go to the king. And she says, I can't. If, if I go, when I'm not summoned, I could die. And he's, basically she says eventually, well, 
maybe God has me in this place for just such a time as this, and if I perish, I perish. So we're going to pick up there in Esther chapter 5. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, I'm going to read, from five, read a section from 5 and then kind of do some storytelling. Read a section from 6, storytelling, and then 7. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance, when he saw Queen Esther standing in the court. This is the moment of drama. What's he going to do? Is she going to live? Is she going to die? He was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, Esther's being very formal, she's being very appropriate, she's wearing her royal robes, she's, if it pleases the king, let the king, said, replied Esther, let the king together with Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. She knows her man, she's strategic, she knows her guy, what does he love to do? He loves a good banquet. You know, she's, how many of you have ever, you know, before you had a big request, you knew you, you were going to butter them up with the things, oh, hey, here's your favorite chocolate cake. Oh, no, did you get in a wreck in the car? You know, that kind of thing, right? So she's buttering him up. Hey, we got a banquet. Would you, I'd love for you to come. So she hosts them at this banquet. And then at the banquet, she asks them to come to another, more exclusive banquet. Haman, as he's leaving the banquet, the, the text says, in high spirits, which is the appropriate way of saying he was very drunk. As he leaves in high spirits... He sees Mordecai, and Mordecai doesn't even pay any attention. Not only does he not bow, Mordecai just doesn't even pay any attention to him. And so Haman is furious, and he goes home and asks his family. He's like, listen, I'm, I'm so sick of this guy. I've got to do something. This guy's humiliating me. This is in an honor and shame culture where if you deserve honor and you're not given it, it's humiliating. And if you are ashamed, it's just the worst thing in the world that could possibly happen. So he... He basically is, he's furious about this and he asks the family. And this is what his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends, they say to him. Have a pole set up, reaching to the height of 50 cubits, an enormous pole. And ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go to the king, to the banquet, and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. Okay. So now, not only is it soon the death of all these people are coming, now it's imminent. Now it's tomorrow morning Mordecai is going to be killed if the king approves of Haman's request. That night, I'm going to skip ahead storytelling. That night, the king, he can't sleep. And because he can't sleep, he asks for his servant to read from the royal records. You know, good, light bedtime reading. And he asks him, hey, I can't sleep. Can you read from all those important records? That'll put me to sleep. And he's reading from the records, and he is reminded that he had written down that not that long ago, a man named Mordecai saved his life from an assassination. And he thinks, oh, I have forgotten to do something to thank Mordecai. And so that morning, Haman has come to, he has prepared his speech, he's practiced in front of the mirror, hey, king, I would like to impale Mordecai on a pole. And the king sees Mordecai in the hall, and he's, oh, Mordecai, come on in, or uh, Haman, come on in, come on in. He says, I've got this guy who I would really like to honor. And Haman, being the villain that he is, the, Haman is the picture definition of the pride goes before a fall kind of thing, of not being humble. He goes, who would the king most like to honor? It's probably me. And so he says, well, 
what you should do is, you know, you should, you should take him and dress him in the king's wardrobe. And you should put him on a horse that was ridden by the king and with the king's diadem on the horse. And you should parade him around town, have him go through town with people saying, this is the man the king delights to honor. And now I will say, we should talk about it more on Wednesday night class. A lot of this language is language of kind of like coup language, just so you know, like usurper language. For him to want to the people in town to basically think this guy is like practically king. He's wearing the king's clothes. He's on the king's horse. And you'll see there's another example of him looking like he's kind of trying to become king, but I won't get there yet. So he says all of this, and the, and the king is delighted. He's like, I love this idea. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested. For Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate, do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai. You're supposed to almost imagine that he's actually having to put all this stuff on Mordecai. You know, and Mordecai's just like, hey, Haman, remember me? I'm that guy that you hate, that you don't, you know, he's like loving it. Mordecai's like, this is awesome. Um, hey, you missed a spot on my shoes. Um, and so he's robing Mordecai, and he led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief. Like I said, honor, shame. He's completely ashamed. And he told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mor- This is interesting. I don't know exactly what's going on here, but it's very interesting. Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started. So like they're not saying, oh man, that's a real bummer. They're like, hey, this is a bad sign. This is a bad omen. Your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin. You cannot stand against him. What is that? Is that her thinking? Maybe something, maybe something to do with she knows who their God is, maybe? And she's thinking, oh, you're in trouble? I don't know. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet, Esther chapter 7. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, so I think you're supposed to imagine they got to the banquet and now we're on day two of having a good time. Just I know this is, these people love to party. They're having the wine on the second day. The king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered. All right, now she's going to be very formal. She's going to, be, she's going to do a great job, very strategic about what she says. If I have found favor with you, which, by the way, you know she has because he has said, I'll come with If I found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet. She's saying, if, it, if we had just been sold into slavery, I wouldn't have bothered you with this request. But we have been sold to be destroyed. Because no such desire would justify disturbing the king. Very formal language. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. Esther said, an adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. You can picture Haman as like, you know, becoming very red throughout all of this. Now, he doesn't know that she's a Jew, though. So she hasn't said, because I'm a Jew. She's just said, me and my people. So Haman's maybe, and who has done this? This Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. 
The king got up in a rage and left his wine and went out into the palace garden. I read one scholar say that he believes the king is in a really tough spot and he's trying to go out. He's furious because he's like, what am I supposed to do? This is my top of my workers and this is my top of my harem. And now we're in a big, we're at odds. We're in trouble. He's furious, right? He's like, what am I supposed to do here? But Haman is going to solve the problem for the king. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. So culturally, if you are a part of the king's harem, no other man is allowed to be alone with you in the room. And so when he comes back in, the king sees Haman begging for his life and thinks that he is trying to take her as his wife, which would be the final stage of a usurping or a coup. The ultimate sign of someone wanting to become king and replace the king is if you get the queen to be your queen. You see this in Hamlet, by the way. All of the, You see this in Lion King, which is based off the book of Hamlet. You see this all over the place. And so this is the final step of the coup. And he's like, oh, my problem is solved. I'm going to kill this Haman guy because now I can say, hey, this guy is trying to take over as king. And what you see in the story, which we'll talk about more on Wednesday night, is you see a total reversal of everything that was going to happen to the Jews and Mordecai now happens to Haman. So Haman had a poll set up for Mordecai, and the servants are going to say to the king, hey, listen, if you're wanting to kill Mordecai, there's this pole set up at his house already, and so Haman is impaled on the pole. And what then happens is, and this is where, like I said, I'm not going to have time to cover all of it, but Esther and Mordecai go to the king and say, listen, what do we need to do to stop the annihilation of our people? And the king says, listen, I made a decree, and I can't revoke a royal decree, but I'm going to make another decree that says that for the people who are Jewish in the provinces, they should rise up and defend themselves on that day. And on that day, they defeat their enemies and they're rescued. And that day, to this day, is called Purim, which is celebrated by Jews all over the world as a day of celebration of God's rescue. And I want to just point out, this is another example of a theme in Scripture. The day that was meant for the death and annihilation of God's people ended up becoming the day of their salvation. Okay? That's just a really cool theme in Scripture. The instrument of death that Jesus was put on became the instrument of our salvation. The dying to yourself becomes the source of our life. It's just a theme throughout that the day that was meant to kill God's people is now the day that they celebrate as the day of God's rescue. So I'm going to talk about a few points to wrap up this sermon. The first thing that we have to talk about that I've been holding on to till this final lesson, some of you may know this, some of you may not, but one of the most striking things in all of Scripture about the book of Esther is the fact that it is the only book in the Bible that never references the name of God ever. If you look through every single line of Esther, you will never, ever see God's name mentioned once. So I want to pause, and this is something I debated about bringing up because I thought, I don't know if this helps my point of my sermon, but I also see part of my job as the preacher to help shape your theology. So I'm going to take a theological moment for a second. You ready? Okay. The first thing I want to talk about is all of us, at some time or another, have felt like God was absent from our lives. Okay? And I'm going to give you three very generalized ways that that can happen. The first, and this is the most common, is that sometimes when you are living your life where you are feeding the life 
of things that are against God's way of living, and you are strangling the things that are in line with God's will, you are often going to feel like God is absent from your life. I know this may sound crazy, but when I talk to all my minister friends, when they have someone that comes into their office and says, I just feel like God is far away, 75% of the time, by the end of the conversation, they have confessed to some kind of ongoing, perpetual sin that they have in their life that they're living into. You may think I'm lying. That's just a reality, okay? That happens. That's, that's a common option. The second thing is that sometimes the reason we feel this way is because we still live in the mindset of if things are going good, then God is with me. If things are going bad, God must be upset with me. It must be far from me. And so if you're in a season of immense struggle, you might just feel like there's no way God is around me right now. So that's the second common option. But the third option, which we talk very little about, is an option that is experienced by almost every devout Christian that's ever lived where they feel like they are in a season for longing for God, but they feel like all they're getting back from Him is silence. There's a famous uh, Christian uh, writer. His name is St. John of the Cross, and he is the one that coined this phrase of that feeling being the dark night of the soul. Okay? Some of you may have heard of that before. Some of you maybe haven't. But he is famous for writing a poem about the dark night of the soul, of this deep longing for God and feeling like he's not giving anything back. We see an example of this in our psalm book in Psalm 42, one that y'all are familiar with. I don't have it on the screen, but I'm going to read it to you. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with him? We often sing this in the language of like, oh, I want God so much. And that's beautiful, but this is not that. This is saying, I want God so much, and I am completely thirsty. I can't find him anywhere. I'm, I'm like a deer that is looking in a drought for a little bit of water and I can't find any and I want it so bad but I can't find it my tears have been my food day and night while people say to me all day long where is your God these things I remember as I pour out my soul how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng you, he's saying I have memories of going to worship God and just feeling overwhelmed with his presence singing there's a stirring singing these songs the Magnificat and going man I'm bawling this is amazing I can feel God's spirit as if he's right here with with me, but that's not what I'm feeling right now. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. So this psalm is a psalm of someone who is longing for God but does not feel God's presence, like a deer in a dry desert looking for water. And the reason why I felt like this tangent was worth it is because if you feel like God today is absent from your story, or in the future you have a moment of thinking, God is absent from my story, I want you to know that this is not uncommon and it is not something you should beat yourself up about. This does not mean that you are the worst person ever. This is a part that a lot of spiritual fathers and mothers have experienced of their journey of becoming closer and closer to God. You actually notice that for many people, they would say that this season of drought from God was the thing that eventually took their relationship with God from 
this level to a whole nother level that they had never been to before after years or decades. If you want to research Mother Teresa, she talks about having whole decades of her life where she felt like she didn't even hear ever hear from God. And in those moments, instead of going, well, there must be something wrong with me, maybe we need to start thinking, actually, this is maybe part of what it looks like to walk in the journey with God, is that we have these seasons. Now back to the story of Esther. Why does the book of Esther never mention God? Why does it never say Yahweh? It never says Elohim. It never says Adonai. No mention of God ever. You can see places in the story where it actually would make sense for God to be referenced. Like, it would have made perfect sense for the narrator whenever Haman is coming through and Mordecai doesn't bow to him. It would have made perfect sense for Mordecai to say, I'm not going to bow to you because I worship Yahweh. But he doesn't. It would have made perfect sense whenever Esther is telling them in chapter 4, go and fast for me, for her to say, also while you're fasting, please pray to God. But she doesn't. Why does that happen? And I believe the answer is, is that the book is inviting you to see God in places where he seems to be absent. The narrator is purposefully not mentioning God in all of these situations because they're inviting you to go, but God is there. Even when it seems like he's not there. Even when you tell how terrible is this that this young girl has been taken and had to go through this process that she, against her will to become queen, how can God be in that? How can God be in all these rampant parties? and all? How can God be in that? And yet, if you read the story, you're going to see that we've all been in these seasons and all been in situations where it feels like God would be nowhere in sight, but he is there. And frankly... If you read scripture long enough, you could argue that Jesus and God are mostly in places that you would not expect. With the lame, with the naked, with the prisoners, we get that line, where were you whenever we fed you and clothed you? What you did for the least of these, you did for me. He's in the furnace. He's in the wilderness. He's on the cross. The last places you would expect God to be tend to be the places that he's most commonly there. So the question isn't just, are you willing to look for God in the story? But the question is, how can God not be in this story? If you read Esther, there is no denying that you're like, of course God is at work in this story. Let me give you a very fun example of this in a real life context. I don't know if this will take too long, but I think it'll be worth it. When I first got here, I wanted to have a youth intern because I thought that would be good for the teens. And I tried to think of people that I would know that I thought would do a good job and actually want to live in a small rural town for the summer. And I thought of Kevin Davis. Do you all remember Kevin? I thought, Kevin likes to hunt. Kevin likes to fish. He grew up in a small, smallish Church of Christ. You know, so he's going he's gonna to know the ropes. You know, whenever the kid says, let's sing Light the Fire, he's not going to be like, Light the Fire? What is that? You know, is, he's, he knows that song because he grew up swimming in these waters, right? He comes... And then at the end of the summer, we have a lock-in at Group Dynamics, and he decides to invite some friends from AFC. One of those friends is his cousin, who happens to be Samantha Pope, right? I meet Samantha, and I go, you know, she did a really good job on that lock-in of interacting with the students. She might be a good intern. Then there's an Aggies for Christ group that comes. I don't know if they would have come if... Kevin hadn't have made that connection, you know? He was, oh, you got to bring a group. I don't know. So the group comes, and then they're working. And I remember at the end of the summer, Kevin preaches a sermon at the end of his internship. And I remember Samantha Pope comes, his cousin, to help him. 
shake her in the, wow, she's got great handshake. She makes great eye contact. She's something. She might be a good intern. So then, before the Aggies for Christ trip ever comes, I ask Seth if he'd be willing to be an intern, and I ask Samantha if she'd be willing to be an intern. Seth's response is, uh, I don't know. Hers is, I'm really interested. At the end of the AFC trip, one of the things about it was, He's at Tarleton, right? And I told him, hey, you know, we're going to have all these college students here. You might have a good time staying where they're staying at the Clifton's instead of staying with your parents, you know? They're all your peers. So come on. That night, they stay up way late talking to each other, right? And maybe a week later, Seth responds to me and says, hey, I am interested in that internship, by the way. Okay? Now, fast forward, Seth and Samantha Williams, okay? Now, are they married because Kevin Davis interned at our church? No. But would they have met each other without it? Are they married because she came on that AFC trip and because Seth happened to say, you know, I asked Josie, would it be okay? I know you're hosting like 17 college students. Would you be okay with one more? Yeah, sure, Seth can come. Would they be married if they hadn't had that conversation? Maybe. Maybe not. Are you following me? You hear that story, and yeah, in all of those little things, we don't like to go, well, clearly God did that. But then when you look at the whole picture, you're like, how could God not have been involved in that? Right? That's crazy stuff. Right? And we see that in the story of Esther. If Vashti had not said no to coming out, she would have stayed queen. And if she had not done that, then Esther wouldn't have become queen. And if Esther had not become queen, then she wouldn't have been in the position to say, save my people. If Mordecai had not bowed down to Haman, or had bowed down to Haman, then that night that Haman comes in and is like, by the way, let's hurry this up, let's kill this Mordecai guy, that wouldn't have happened. But you, you seeing what I'm, I'm saying? The invitation is throughout Scripture of every time you don't see God in the story because his name's not there, you clearly see God in the story of Esther saying, I have been behind the scenes working for the restoration of my people throughout this story. Okay? We can see it in the book of Ruth. In the book of Ruth, it just so happened that she went to Boaz's field. It just so happened that he was her kinsman redeemer. It just so happened that when he went to meet with her closest in line kinsman redeemer, he happened to walk by the gate. You see it in the story of Ruth. You see it in the story of Joseph. Another person's favorite Bible verse, Genesis 5.20. In Joseph, or 50.20, Joseph is sold into slavery, and then it, he is accused of adultery, so put into prison, and then he interprets dreams in prison, and eventually it all leads to him being in a position to save the people of Israel because he knew to stay, save up enough grain for a seven-year drought. And when his brothers come and they say, we're so sorry for what we did to you, he says, as for you, you sold me into slavery because you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, you can't read the story of Joseph and go, oh, well, God wasn't there. He was there in all of that, working behind the scenes to rescue his people. So even when we don't see him, God is working for our rescue. The last thing I want to say is this takeaway point, this trust and this belief that even when I feel like God is so far from me, that he is still at work, is not something you can learn from hearing me preach about it. Now, I can tell you about it, but that's not something you can... You can only learn this from experiencing it in the long journey of following God. You cannot... 
retroactively look back at something 20 years later until you've lived 20 years later. You know? That ability to go, man, I don't know why these things happened in this time frame, at this pace, for these reasons, but God was at work in the midst of it. With a love story like the Williams love story, it's easy to see that and smile. With the story of Esther, where you're able to read the whole book of Esther in 15 minutes if you wanted to. 10 if you're Landry Joe. The, you're able to say, wow, it's obvious that God is at work there. But many of you are probably sitting here going, yeah, but Drew, you don't know my story of tragedy. You don't know my story of brokenness. And you can think, and I, I can't... I can't think this for you, and I, I've never been through something at the level that many of you have gone through, but I would hope that for those of you who have gone through tragedy and brokenness, that you might be able to say, actually, when I look at it through the lens of God's rescue and re- re- restoration, my story is way more beautiful than those love stories. My story is way more of a glimpse of the God that we serve than whenever it works out in a, these two people getting together. Does that make sense? I don't get to preach that from my own perspective. I just get to preach it because I think Scripture testifies to that. So the last question I have for you, and then we'll be done. What does it look like when we are people who trust God is at work? What does it look like to be the kind of Christian that every single day when we're going through things and we don't know why, and whenever we feel like God is very far from us, we say deep down like the psalmist in 42, my God, I'm going to keep praising him because he is my salvation. And I believe that these are the two answers. We hear it in the New Testament. We have a peace that passes all understanding. When everyone says, it looks like your God's really left you. Where is your God? We are able to say, I know this might not be understandable, but I have peace that he's at work behind the scenes for my redemption. And we see that most clearly in Jesus Christ. Because we know from Scripture that even when we were sinners, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he was at work for our salvation, dying for us so that we could have new life. And if any of you would like to learn more about what that new life looks like in Jesus, if any of you have any prayer requests because you feel like God is absent from you, I'd encourage you to stand while we sing this closing song.